0: Welcome to Episode 335 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're going to express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our firms, our clients, our families, or our pets. Uh, Our interview today is with Rob Kanaki, who's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a former National Security Council staffer from the Obama administration, and the author of a recent report called "Weaponized." digital trade, creating a digital trade zone to promote online freedom and cybersecurity, which is what we're going to be talking to him about today. But first, we've got the news roundup. We've got two uh, 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 old favorites and one brand new uh, participant, uh, Maury uh, It was in Steptoe's London office uh, uh, and is a London-based lawyer and technology uh, te- technologist. Maury, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Stuart.
0: Okay, and uh, perennial crowd favorite, Nick Weaver, computer science professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, Nick, good to have you back. Thank you very much. And Michael Weiner, who is a steptoe partner, uh, uh, who has uh, edited a number of antitrust journals, has a lot of insight into antitrust and competition law matters, uh, 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 on for the first time. Michael, thanks for coming.
2: Thank you. Very happy to be here.
0: All right. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur in today's program. And what the reason I asked Michael to join us is because uh, we've been getting foreplay for uh, months now about a Justice Department lawsuit, uh, antitrust lawsuit against Google. Uh, And I keep putting it off because we haven't got anything to report on. Uh, And now we do. We've got a complaint. Uh, We've got uh, a theory. We've got apparent remedies. Uh, And I guess the question is, Michael, uh, what uh, what is the Justice Department
2: suing Google for? Sure. So the complaint is essentially Google annually pays billions of dollars to device manufacturers like Apple and LG and Motorola and Samsung, uh, to carriers like AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon, and to browser developers like Apple again and Mozilla. You know, why? Because these payments secure exclusive, default, preset status for Google's general search engine, and the result is that uh, Google has, according to the complaint, exclusionary agreements covering almost 60% of all general search queries. And when you add that to the 20% more general search queries that are funneled through Google owned and owned properties like Chrome, uh, Google effectively owns or controls 80% of all general search queries. And Google accounts for nearly 90% of all general search queries in the US, and about 95% of queries on mobile. and. Uh, The result of this, according to the complaint, is that Google's practices deny rivals scale to compete effectively and they thwart potential innovation and they create a self-reinforcing cycle of dominance. That's that's the complaint. Let
0: me me ask about this because I think uh, maybe Google said this. Certainly others have said it. uh, uh, When you go into the supermarket – Which products are on which shelves close to eye level uh, uh, or on the end caps is something that is sold to the brands by the uh, uh, supermarket. Uh, Very much similar to this. It's a default that makes it easier to buy their stuff than other stuff. Nobody thinks that's a violation of the antitrust law. So there must be something about Google, maybe its market share, that makes something that would otherwise be okay a subject for litigation.
2: That that is Google's response, and and DOJ's answer to that will likely be yes. It is the market share that makes the difference. Exclusive agreements are fine, except if you're a monopolist, in which case you need to look out for uh, agreements that effectively exclude competition. But but Google's argument was going to be: look, we compete for these for these uh, endile displays or eye level uh, di- displays. Everyone else is free to compete for them as well. The fact that we're paying more. Uh, means that there's competition. We're forced to pay this money in order to to stay at at uh, at prime level, and uh, users can easily change the search service on their devices. Hey uh, DOJ, this is the same thing you 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 uh, argued about Microsoft 20 years ago. Things are very different now. Users are able to switch uh, if they want to. But the fact is, we have we Google have a very good service, and consumers are happy with it.
0: Well, and and by and large, people do like. Google, uh, except when it, uh, uh, you know, biases the search results against uh, uh, conservatives. But uh, that's a pretty rare complaint about the search uh, compared to like YouTube. Um, But it does raise the question, what for for 40 years, people have said, if you want to bring an antitrust case, you have to show how consumers are hurt. And if... Google is a really good search engine that people are happy to have as the default. Um, What's the harm in having Google be the default?
2: Well, that, that's that, that's that's a real challenge for the government here. I think is going to show the the consumer harm. It's certainly Google's argument that that uh, consumers aren't being hurt. Um, in fact, Google goes goes further and says if you take this away, consumers are going to have to pay more um, because we'll have to charge more for our, for the software that we're otherwise providing. You know, what's the most interesting thing about the complaint to me is not what's in it, but what's not in it. And and you just touched on this a little bit. There are no allegations in the complaint about Google favoring its own sites in in search or, or scraping or stealing content from rivals. There's nothing in the complaint about uh, Google's acquisitions of, of uh, DoubleClick or AdMob or AdMelt. There's nothing about privacy. There's nothing um, about Chrome's dominance. Uh, in uh, you know, it, it, The complaint is really a lot more limited than some people had expected. And uh, uh, yeah, it, but we haven't necessarily seen the end of the game. Uh, there are uh, a number of state attorneys general that are continuing to investigate. Um, they may add more. They may not add more. But uh, the game may, the, the story may not be over on the complaint.
0: So Wikipedia has the great concept, which I uh, uh, revert to frequently uh, when they think some sh- something should be covered, uh, but they don't have the expertise themselves, they put in what they call a stub, uh, and it is uh, basically a placeholder that will be elaborated upon in the usual Wikipedia fashion that, uh, later. This, this isn't quite a stub lawsuit, but it is, it is a minimalist lawsuit.
2: It's also a lawsuit that was filed weeks before an election. The Antitrust Division, if there is a regime change, will be different. Um, th- this complaint will be around for a while. The response isn't even due at this point until December nineteenth. The Microsoft case was filed in 1998. wasn't settled until, I think, the beginning of 2002. So this is going to be around for some time. And uh, yeah, it may very be end up being very different than it is today, than it looks today. So last question uh,
0: on this. Uh, Um, As I was reading it, I thought, um, so what is the remedy? And it looks as though the remedy that the government is asking for is for Google not to be the default uh, on Android or uh, uh, a variety of other or or on your browser, or at least that you be forced to to choose a kind of forced ballot, uh, similar to something that the EU did to uh, uh, to Microsoft that uh, nobody thought was all that impressive as a, a piece of relief. And if at the end of the day, after all of this huffing and puffing, the result of this and the only logical remedy is uh, I, I get asked, sort of like, uh, uh, is it okay to uh, leave um, cookies on your hard drive? Uh, I get asked, do you really want Google to be your default or do you want to try Bing? Um, It's going to feel a little like an awful lot of uh, activity for a pretty small uh, uh, outcome.
2: Well, I I agree. The complaint is actually really very sparse on relief. Uh, They're asking that that the for a decree that Google acted unlawfully they're asking for potentially structural relief potentially an injunction from anti-competitive practices in general other relief that's necessary and appropriate uh, they really haven't specified what relief they're, they're looking for a, at all at this point
0: uh, okay and so the, the there is also a Facebook, Uh, complaint that hasn't been released yet uh, that the FTC is apparently working on. Do you have any idea what the FTC issues with Facebook are likely to be?
2: Well, no, but what's been talked about is, is uh, and what people have been talking about for years now are going back and looking at the uh, Facebook acquisitions um, uh, and, and challenging whether Instagram and WhatsApp should have been acquired. Uh, there's no statute limitations on, on the ability to go back and look at these deals. That's what's being speculated about. Uh, and it's not just the FTC. It's also state AGs that are uh, getting into the, the Facebook uh, game next, it looks like.
0: Yeah, but you in, in my experience, and certainly that was Microsoft's experience, uh, uh, they were talking about well, we need to break break loose the browser from the operating system, and so Microsoft just coded it so it was impossible to do. Uh, and my guess is that uh, uh, Facebook is going to be highly incentivized to make it impossible to uh, to break out its uh, long ago acquisitions, uh, and so um, uh, that may that may turn out to be a weird,
2: of the wisp and i trust parlance you can't unscramble the eggs yes
0: okay all right michael thank you that was that was very educational and pretty economical uh, uh maury can you do the same for the indictment of the gru uh, uh for apparently everything bad that ever happened
1: online in the last five years except the u.s elections but um <laughs> that's right um uh, so Within the Russian cyber ops uh, community, there's the sandworm team is key that it's part. It's at the GRU, which is Russian military intelligence. And last week, there was an indictment unsealed in the Western District of Pennsylvania against six members of the team for doing lots of stuff involving Ukraine, the country of Georgia, French elections, Russian foreign use of nerve agents, the 2018 Winter Olympics and the NotPetya ransomware. But not the USA elections. It seems to be um, making a a bipartisan point that the FBI can attribute uh, Russian um, cyber ops, um, perhaps as a deterrent, although it hasn't been very effective, and maybe more politically uh, showing that this administration is being tough on Russia, um, all the, you know, is not going after U.S. election interference, though, which is interesting.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, being tough at at some point, uh, these indictments are a confession of weakness, not a, a, a sign of strength. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether we've gotten there. I, I certainly think we should try to indict these guys and we should try to uh, um, prosecute them because they really have the, uh, done enormous damage. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, I am I am not convinced that these guys are ever going to be within uh, the jurisdiction of the U.S. Justice Department and uh, my guess is that somebody's going to have to rethink the question of should we decide to indict people just because they've done a lot of damage? Because if that happens, we're just going to be indicting everybody. Uh, and if you indict everybody and find no way to punish them, then you just start to look uh, like a loser. Um, they also, they, they the Treasury Department also uh, sanctioned a uh, Russian institute, research institute, I guess, for coming up with the malware that uh, attacked Saudi Arabia. That seemed a little more promising, but maybe only a little.
1: Yeah, um, it's, this is the Triton malware. It was used on a refinery in Saudi Arabia. It's purportedly been used um, on other similar facilities Uh, It goes after industrial controllers, apparently the same group at this Russian institute, which has got an acronym that I speak Russian and can't really pronounce. Um, (laughs) um, But they've uh, supposedly the same group has been scanning U.S. power grids. U.S. sanctions can have an effect um, because you don't need to go through the court process. Just the institute gets blocked from access to the international financial system effectively, or at least the dollar based financial system. So maybe that's uh, a little more effective. I agree with your yeah, comments. about as long as they have the ind-
0: commercial, if they have commercial ties and commercial dependencies, yes. If it's purely government, then it probably isn't going to have much effect.
1: Yeah. And I agree with your comments about the indictments. I don't think we're going to get these guys in court. Uh, the speculation is the real purpose, and this was in the Justice Department press release, is the real purpose is to show that we can attribute these attacks. I I don't know whether that requires an indictment to do that. You could do that with, um, you know, with a press release. But yeah, there you go.
0: And I thought that, you know, the best attri- sign of ability to attribute is the uh, um, attribution uh, of the uh, uh, Proud Boys uh, uh, emails to uh, registered democrats to iran uh within like um 24 hours of the distribution of the uh, letters uh, of the emails Uh, um that's impressive and you don't need to indict everybody to show that uh, that you can move fast when uh uh, when you've got a, a second tier uh actor like iran the which is perfectly capable of making mistakes and did. Um, uh, that's that's much more impressive than than a little tome five years late that says these guys did not pitch yeah, him. All right. So, now that uh, so far, I, it's, it's a litany of things that prob- the government can do that probably won't work. Let's go for three. Uh, see if we can go three for three. Uh, the Germans have raided Finfisher, uh, a spyware company that uh, uh, has uh, a, sold a lot of stuff internationally, but may not have gotten licenses for everything it sold. Nick, uh, uh, what happened? So as far as we can tell, this is actually the
3: wheels of justice grinding slow but fine. So FinFisher is one of those companies that specialize in malcode for government purposes, law enforcement, et cetera. And they have had a reputation in the past of being in the Werner von Braun School of Rocketry selling to repressive regimes. It's it's my job to get it up. That's not my responsibility where it comes down. Yep, it's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Um, And so this appears to date back to some activity around 2017 where they were selling to Turkey. And Turkey is not an EU country, therefore you need the proper um, export licenses. And apparently there's arguments about whether they did their proper paperwork or not. And so they just got visited by um, the German police. And we don't know what's going on other than that. But it is interesting that in many ways, Finn Fisher has already been replaced. The, the NSO group has largely taken over a lot of that market, and they're Israeli and
0: don't seem to care at all who they sell to well they may they 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 will tell you they have standards uh, um uh, but turkey probably 10 years ago no one would have said there's something wrong with selling to turkey uh, or maybe 20 but it, uh, um The problem here is that you can sell it on day one, and on day five, the regime evolves in a direction that uh, makes it much less attractive as a a customer, at least when it's disclosed publicly. Um, The other
3: thing is, is these companies aren't actually selling as much as providing operational support. So if the regime of Erdogan turns out super nasty, which it did, you could cut basically cut off support um, at that point, and they apparently didn't. That's um, true.
0: I, these days, you you need continuing updates and support to make your stuff work, okay? and, uh, and that allows companies to do a much more fine-tuned assessment of their customers, which they may or may not be doing. Uh, it's also interesting here, the... Europeans used to be the source of most of this kind of uh, uh, activity. Hacking team in Italy, uh, 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 ZeroDium in uh, um, uh, France, um, and the that that's because exporting from Europe used to be a piece of cake because uh, the U.S. was pretty aggressive about uh, licensing and. Um, uh, the Europeans had gotten comfortable with the idea that their more lax regime was an advantage for European industry, but uh, the uh, the worm has really turned in Europe on spyware, at least.
3: Yep, and it couldn't happen to a nicer group of companies.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, well, okay. Let's uh, let's let's see if we've got four for four. Uh, Facebook is going to solve uh, Facebook's problems by uh, uh, putting in place an oversight board to deal with content moderation decisions. They've begun work. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, uh, can you bring us up to speed on this?
1: Yeah. So this oversight board, it's got 20 members, a variety of international rights-oriented academics, lawyers, journalists, political figures, activists, and others. Um, Left-wing-ish, but some more right-wing people. Um, And... I'm more optimistic about this than some. Um, The weaknesses that have been pointed out, what this board does is it reviews appeals from moderation decisions on Facebook, so decisions to remove content. The board Mm -hmm. gets to decide which cases it reviews, and uh, its decisions are non-precedential. Facebook gets to decide whether they uh, follow them, which is one problem that's pointed out. And, And the bigger problem perhaps is The board doesn't have any power over decisions to leave content up. It's only decisions to moderate, which means take content down. But I still think that it's pretty important. I mean, it's part of the journey for two reasons. One, it's part of the continued journey of Facebook from being a neutral platform to an arbiter of the news. It's really realized that it has an arbiter function. It's it's building infrastructure for that. And I think even – second, I think even if the decisions are not precedential, they'll be influential and newsworthy. And, uh, you know, uh, Facebook is not going to easily uh, disavow the decisions of its own advisory board. So I'm cautiously optimistic.
0: Yeah, I I think all of that is true, and that's why I'm cautiously pessimistic, because I think we're basically going to have uh, a bunch of non-Americans deciding on which American speech can stay up. I recognize they'll also be doing it in Malaysia and Thailand and Burma and the like. But uh, um, uh, from the point of view of the U.S., um, I I think – the views that uh, President Trump represents, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of the United States, uh, represent somewhere between two and one percent of the world. Uh, and so, uh, the likelihood that uh, this group will think that. Uh, things that conservatives say are perfectly okay to suppress, uh, is very high. Uh, and so my guess is that it, whatever the rules are, uh, the decisions are going to be tilted against conservatives. Uh, they, they may love conservatives in their own country, but they can still view the United States and U.S. conservatives as too dangerous to be allowed to speak. Uh, So I I fear that the uh, to the extent that it has presidential value and it might uh, um, this left leaning group uh, is going to uh, simply ratify a lot of the uh, prejudices of Silicon Valley.
1: Um, Well, it's hard for me to respond to that. I mean, it's uh, it's a left right thing, I suppose, and and certainly to some degree. But but Uh, I I, I think it's
0: it's also the case that, uh, you know, Indian Indians are quite nationalistic. Uh, Chinese are extraordinarily nationalistic, Uh, uh, but they can all agree that American nationalism is racist. Uh, And so uh, because they don't really want to see American nationalism having an impact in their uh, uh, country. Um, and so uh, I fear that the standards will not be so much left, right, except uh, uh, in terms of American speech.
1: I mean, but so what, I mean, somebody has to decide these things. Uh, you, know, you know, where would you?
0: I, yeah, but I, I actually think That's the problem. We've we've walked into saying somebody has to decide these things and the things that they have to decide grow every year as people say, oh, we have to decide that, too. Uh, I'm not sure. I think we would be better off if uh, um, uh, Silicon Valley were afraid to make these decisions, more afraid than it is. Uh, uh, um, But... uh, We'll see uh, uh, how, that, how this all turns out. I will be interested to see how the Oversight Board handles this. And I disagree with the people who think they ought to also uh, uh, tell us what to take down because all of the incentives uh, in social media are to take stuff down. Uh, if there's any country in the world where you might be in legal trouble for leaving it up, you're going to take it down and you're going to take down stuff that sounds a lot like it uh, just on the off chance. Uh, so adding yet another um, hair trigger for taking stuff down or another um, weight on that side of the, uh, the scales strikes me as uh, solving the wrong problem.
1: Well, I agree with you there. And even though I live in the middle of a lot of non-Americans here in London, um, I still believe in the First Amendment. So I, I sympathize with you on that last point.
0: All right, okay. Um, so, I, if um, if the story of the oversight board is Facebook uh, uh, exercising quasi governmental powers, uh, so's the next one. Nick, uh, um, uh, I, I wanted to come back to this story. We covered this, but uh, we finally got a chance to read the pleadings in the Microsoft TrickBot case, and uh, it raises a couple of questions, like. Is the Microsoft attack on TrickBot actually doing anything and is the legal theory um, so dangerous that uh, we would be better off not trying this considering the results? So you followed how well Microsoft's actually doing in, in taking TrickBot down. I haven't followed it as closely.
3: It seems to be working okay. Um, the legal theory is, um, to put it politely, aggressive. But at the same time, I don't think it's a great danger outside because it's a legal theory that you really can't weaponize against anybody who
0: would actually respond in court. So the if interesting I, if I, thing... If, if, I, if I understood the legal theory, it's that... Um- it's actually kind of reminiscent of, of Oracle's argument against Google. They said, We d- developed all of these APIs and all of this declaring code to call those APIs, and uh, modern malware uses mainly Microsoft's own functions against the user, Uh, so it has to call on these things, and because it needs to call on them and it has to use our declaring code, which we've copyrighted, and you can't use it without our license, and our license says you won't do bad things with it, so uh, this is a copyright violation. Is that the theory? I think so. Also, I believe there's some bit of trademark law in there, too. Well, there's plenty of trademark, and they used trademark for a long time because they said, you used our name. You, you used msnnet.gov or .com, uh, and you registered msn dot, uh, msnnet.com um, as a name, but that's our trademark. We should take those uh, sites back from you because you were – uh, essentially fooling consumers who were relying on that name to think that it was safe to go there. Uh, that, that was a more plausible argument, uh, but it led to much more limited resul- relief because you could just take down the, uh, the uh, C2 sites that misused Microsoft's copy- or, uh, trademarks.
3: Right. But in the end, the bigger question I have is why isn't the U.S. government doing this? That all the computers that get taken down in the long list in Appendix 1 or Appendix A are clearly within reach of the U.S. justice system and respect the U.S. justice system. Why doesn't the FBI do this? This seems like the classic role of law enforcement, because among other things, it Doesn't need this, uh, legal reaching. It's these are being used in an ongoing criminal activity. Stop it.
0: Yeah, and I think the answer probably is the uh, that Microsoft has the sophistication, the budget, and is willing on a kind of uh, community chest donation basis to do this because it, the publicity is good enough uh, to justify putting the resources in. And, uh, you know, if, if I were a lawyer at Microsoft, I would be much happier doing this than most of the other things that lawyers at Microsoft have to do. So it would be fun. All right. All uh, right. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, uh, Facebook asked to shut down an NYU research project that was trying to figure out how it was micro-targeting ads to people. And it basically did that, as I understood it, by uh, putting code on browsers and then telling people to go wander around the internet uh, uh, and the code would identify their characteristics and the ads that they were served. And Facebook has said, you can't do that uh, and um, threatened lawsuits over that. Uh, um, I'm guessing that uh, researchers hate this idea. I wasn't sure what their, um, the legal basis for their claim was either.
3: As far as I can tell, Facebook's basis is we have expensive lawyers. Unfortunately for them, uh, my colleagues at NYU uh, are probably not going to roll over on this. How it worked is they provided a browser extension for volunteers that would track all the stuff that Facebook is collecting and using for targeting ads. And they were, for example, finding um, political ads that weren't in Facebook's political ad database. Uh So this is very valuable research, especially in the context of the election. And Facebook's attempt to shut it down just reads really ham-handed. Here's hoping that it was just a too low level person in the Facebook legal department convincing the Facebook legal to send a uh, nasty gram, because if they try to take this
0: to the wall, the blowback will be uh, epic. So the problem, if you're Facebook, is that how you decide to target ads, uh, what data you collect, what conclusions you draw from that, that's what you do that that's the secret sauce uh and so bringing transparency to that uh is dangerous from a um uh an abuse point of view that other people will figure out how to game the system from this research right Except that people are doing that already. So, like, there was a great
3: article in the New York Times the other day about how the Epic Times, which is Falun Gong's uh, front newspaper, managed to go from a kind of innocuous uh, document to a really right-wing, frothy, crazy conspiracy monger in the pursuit of Facebook traffic because they successfully
0: reverse-engineered a lot of what was necessary to go viral. All right. Um, So here's a story I just cannot resist uh, we you've all now heard of adversarial generative AI uh, 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 analysis in which uh, uh, two different artificial intelligences try to fool each other and each time they come up with a new generation it's run back at the other. And the other tries to figure out what uh, uh, was done and to counter it. uh, And you get better products on both sides from that. We're doing that, except that we've got people on one side uh, and machines on the other in the context of analyzing CEO statements uh, uh, on investor calls uh, or analyst calls. Um, It really did remind me of uh, uh, John Henry uh, with the hammer trying to to beat the, uh, uh, the steam driving uh, uh, rail tr- uh, machine. Um, uh, uh, Maury, uh, how did this, how is this uh, contest, how did it come about and who's winning?
1: Well, I like the John Henry analogy. Um, Bloomberg did a piece um, in the last week, basically showing how many downloads of company uh, press conferences are done by machine, uh, by by seeing which IP addresses download lots. And they're theorizing that as a result, a a lot of the analysis is by machine and CEOs are starting to pay attention. And the headline is the CEOs are starting to outsmart the robot analysts, which I think is a bit of BS. I I would say definitely true that uh, CEOs and their PR people are paying attention, like they, you know, like um, web people did to search engine optimization. And maybe it's changing their dialogue a bit, but here's why I think it's BS one. This has always been the case. CEOs have always tried to couch their messages in ways to be very subtle. And and the second one is really the John Henry point, though. The robots are going to catch up. You know, search engine optimization is no longer really a thing because Google has figured out how to f- figure out which websites really are delivering content. And the bots are going to figure this stuff out, Um uh, eventually, So if, if the CEOs have a chance to game the system, it's a narrow window for a year or two, maybe.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I have to say that all things in the end come back to this is Spinal Tap, uh, which again demonstrated uh, the adversarial generative man machine uh talent uh, by announcing that their appeal was becoming ever more selective for their Uh, bands. That's the kind of language that you need to beat the algorithms. Uh, And uh, they, once again, Spinal Tap was ahead of their uh, time. Um, The Senate has decided to subpoena Facebook and Twitter uh, to talk about why they tried to suppress the New York Post story about uh, Hunter Biden's uh, um, laptop and the hard drive. Uh, I, and uh, they're going to be coming, I think in a act of um, what's likely to be uh, sort of a, uh, a letdown after the election, Um a, do you get a sense that we're going to hear a lot of interesting things from Facebook and Twitter over this story?
1: No, I mean, look, we've had a lot of CEO testimony, and it's it's interesting to see these CEOs testify, but their messaging is pretty predictable. Um, what you referred to, the subpoenas to the CEOs of Facebook and Twitter was from the Judiciary Committee. The, the Senate Commerce Committee also sent letters to Facebook and Twitter requesting information about interactions with presidential candidates. Um, It's a little less clear what they're up to there compared to the New York Post one. Um, But I guess they want to know whether the the companies have been talking to Joe Biden. Uh, But they've got an upcoming uh, hearing on before the election, I think this week on the uh, DMCA. Um, So I think it's... You know, uh, I, I think these the Republican leadership of this Senate is not too charitable to these companies and they're trying to figure out and exert a little bit of pressure.
0: So my guess is uh, the the uh, uh, the Biden campaign is not run by dopes. Uh, they know it's important to try to squelch these stories. And this is a story they've seen coming for a while. Maybe not this exact story, but um, they probably have people who are designated on salary just to work Facebook, just to work Twitter, to get them to take stuff down, to suppress it, uh, uh, working the ref. Uh, uh, they, they, they've they always had people who work journalists. Uh, both campaigns uh, work journalists and try to find journalists that are on their side and feed them stories, kill stories, feed them lines about uh, uh, particular stories. Uh, they have to have somebody who does that for Facebook and Twitter I think we all would like to read the emails in which they are trying to get Facebook and Twitter to kill these stories. Uh, it'll be really educational for us all. And I'm hoping that's what the Senate Commerce Committee is uh, is calling for.
3: Except that I don't think you'll find that much because, firstly, on Facebook, they're gonna, they're this thing still signals. went viral <laughs> yeah. in the uh, Fox News uh, Cinematic Universe Types. And um, Twitter relented fairly quickly when the realization was um, there was no there there. Um, And so instead, all we have is Rudy Giuliani shopping around photos supposedly taken from Hunter Biden's cell phone that show a Russian carrier. So...
0: um Actually, I, I'm not sure it's over yet. Twitter has yet to restore the New York Post's uh, account because the New York Post said, well, we, we we're not going to take down our last tweet. Uh, and Twitter said, well, you have to, because we are Twitter uh, and uh, once New we York make a decision. Post
3: just tweeted out their endorsement shock of oh, President okay. Trump. All
0: right. So they, they, it took a week because uh, uh, the last time I looked over the weekend, they had not gotten their account back. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I I I agree with you that the story got out, but it got out uh, with a Deep twist in it. Uh, the the uh, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post mainly covered it to say, "Oh, look at the crappy journalistic standards from the New York Post," uh, as opposed to whether there was a problem here for the Biden campaign. The, uh, well,
3: that's because there isn't. Even uh, Vladimir Putin says there isn't a problem for the Biden campaign in these messages. Um, I guess he's gotten some polling out of Texas
0: to indicate what. Uh, He's saying, and yeah. uh, I, I, there, there, there have been this guy Bobolinsky came out and said, "Yeah, those uh, uh, those messages are consistent with what I uh, saw and released text messages that he had that uh, were consistent with that that suggested." And those messages
3: to- indeed showed that. Joe Biden had nothing to do with his son trading on his parents name, unlike, say, Donald Trump with uh, Ivanka's nepotism in violation of federal law.
0: I have no I'm not going to carry any water for Ivanka Trump, uh, uh, but uh, um, it's kind of remarkable that we know all about that from uh, The New York Times and nothing about. To, uh, these issues, which at a minimum are a, an appearance of impropriety. And frankly, uh, uh, he defends his son. What do you son. mean we don't know about these issues? These were covered
3: for the past year. And in fact, why was All Trump this- impeached was specifically All- trying to get the Ukrainians to fake up evidence about Hunter Biden's improprieties with Burisma.
0: So so exactly what we get is um, stories that tell us how evil uh, the Trump administration is and Ivanka is and President Trump is, and stories that tell us uh, that uh, there uh, uh, that Hunter Biden is beset by evil uh, Trump Trumpistas too. Uh, that's not exactly covering the stories uh, in an even-handed fashion. But I you really uh, need to break this. out of the Fox News cinegraphic uh, universe. I never Stuart. watched Fox News. I, I I hate to tell you this, but I never have watched. Yeah, but you're
3: stuck in that extended cinematic universe. (laughs) Because
0: I know exactly how that story would be covered. Well, we do know how that story was covered. We had this completely bogus uh, 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 dossier on uh, uh, Trump that was treated for Two years as holy writ and turns out it was full of uh, Russian um, uh, and pr- quite possibly Russian intelligence sources. Uh, and we never heard that until very recently and then only from a few retrospective looks from uh, uh, the mainstream media.
3: All right. But at the same I- time, you don't need that when you have so much completely obvious out there.
0: <laughs> All right. Okay. So let's go to something we agree on. Uh, good news. Uh, Edward Snowden is going to get to stay permanently in Russia. Good news.
3: This is awful news. we really made a mistake of not letting him, air quote,
0: escape to the socialist paradise of Venezuela. It's true. It's true. We're, we're, we're presumably by now he would be uh, uh, out eating rats with everybody else. You got it. All right. Uh, And uh, finally, uh, very quickly, and I'm covering this mainly because it got a lot of uh, uh, likes and retweets when I uh, put it out on uh, uh, Twitter over the weekend. Uh, um, Activists, uh, (laughs) the the Portland uh, City Council decided to ban facial recognition and it had a guy stand up in the uh, uh, middle of the meeting and say, wait a minute, don't do that. I want to use facial recognition on the police. Uh, Now, we've been told facial recognition is always evil and that it's always biased. And uh, uh, you could have expected somebody to say, what about those poor black policemen who will be uh, the subject of AI uh, discrimination? But no, what the uh, uh, Portland City Council said is this is a ban on government using facial recognition. This is a ban on companies using facial recognition. But this is not a ban on activists. Using facial recognition. So go forth uh, and uh, uh, discover who these police are from their face uh, and then dox them, which was the reason that uh, the police had been putting numbers instead of uh, uh, names on their ID badges. Uh, Now, if this guy ever does finish his work, uh, uh, we can return to a world where uh, the the only people who can be harmed by facial recognition will be the police. All right. Uh, Listen, that's uh, uh, a terrific news roundup. And let me now turn to the interview with Rob Kanaki. So our interview this week is with Rob Kanaki, who's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was on the National Security Council staff during the Obama administration, and he's the author for the Council on Foreign Relations of a recent report entitled Weaponizing Digital Trade, Creating a Digital Trade Zone to Promote Online Freedom and Cybersecurity, which is what I want to. Talk about today, um, Rob. I, I have to say this does feel a little like the uh, the kind of striped pants uh, set from the Council on Foreign Relations uh, um, uh, showing off their muscles by talking about weaponizing digital trade. To, uh, but why don't you uh, why don't you explain that a little? Because I'm not sure you're weaponizing much.
4: So the notion really here. When I when I looked at the Trump administration's cyber strategy and I compared it to the Obama administration's international cyber strategy, I was really struck by the fact that between those two strategies, they literally had switched the space, the place of one word. They'd gone from saying we're going to promote an open, interoperable, secure, and reliable Internet in the Obama era to saying we're going to promote an open, reliable, interoperable network. In the trump era so it was literally taking this idea that we've had for 30 years that we're just going to be the promoters of an open internet that if countries just connect to the internet and they allow the data to flow good things are going to happen countries are going to liberalize they're going to democratize capitalism is going to spread and i think at this point we should accept that that's really not working as a strategy this was just
0: a short version this was hogwash when the obama administration said it and it's it's hogwash piled on hogwash when the trump administration says it. nobody believes that this is going to happen this is i you know here's here's my quick assessment of that that's what silicon valley wants to hear i uh, even though they know it's not true too they'd rather have washington pursue that Hopeless agenda because any other agenda admits that uh, Silicon Valley isn't going to get everything it wants.
4: So I think you're right. I think in the Clinton administration, It was believed that this was actually going to happen by the bush administration there was sort of a reality that huh china seems to be going a different way and connecting to the internet didn't lead to democracy and all these good things and so now you know i think it's in part a a rearguard action with technology firms to say look you need to recognize if you haven't already that you're probably not going to get into the chinese market and those billion consumers are going to remain out of your reach and so the idea of saying yep. we need to weaponize our trade policy was to say, look, we need to compete, compete against China on the ideas market. The idea we've been selling, they're not buying. We actually need to sell an idea to Europe. We need to sell an idea to India, to Indonesia, to Japan, to Australia, because it's looking increasingly like the U.S. version of the Internet is going to be for the United States and maybe certain provinces of Canada, and that's about it.
0: So, if I could rename your report, which I think I, that you, you've accurately stated what I thought you were doing, and then that's a that that's a perfectly fair strategy. Yeah, uh, but it's really saying we've we've laid claim to territory we can't possibly hold. How do we hell do we get out of this with something that's worth having? I, I'm going to suggest that instead of weaponizing digital trade, you'd have called, you should should have called it. Digital Dunkirk. Uh, uh, how, do, how do we uh, get out of this uh, mess and back to some place we can defend, which is in the, the case of Dunkirk was the United Kingdom? I, uh, but your your basic idea is right. It, it, it's hopeless to think. Uh, it, it's silly to think that uh, um there's going to be one Internet everywhere, and, and the standards will be set by uh, uh, the U.S. or by Silicon Valley, to the extent that that is part of the U.S. Um, a, and the idea that we ought to figure out what's our alternative to what the Chinese are selling uh, pretty effectively is – to my mind, way overdue. And so you're to be congratulated on recognizing that we couldn't hold uh, the territory that we had claimed uh, in uh, the uh, 90s. Uh, And broadly speaking, what's your idea about what we ought to be holding?
4: Well, so where I begin is I say, okay, let's start with a core group of democracies. Let's start with Europe let's start with japan let's start with india what's really try and attract brazil to this but let's get a group of countries that can say okay we actually begin from a place of democratic values and hopefully a belief in trade among us partners and then say okay let's start on that basis dealing with the problems that we see with digital trade, the problems that are causing many countries to say, you know, we really need to erect barriers in cyberspace at our national borders and say, all right, let's create a trade zone in which we agree that we won't do that to each other, where we agree that we're not going to erect tariff and non-tariff tariff barriers to digital trade among us, and then try and create something that would be attractive to the rest of the world to join. In other words, to say countries on the periphery might say, Hey, you know, we want to clean up our ways. We want to be part of this. We are far, are far more attracted to your vision than we're attracted to the Chinese vision. And we see the economic benefit in joining with you over being completely dominated by the Chinese. So that's the core notion.
0: So I, that this look, I think broadly speaking, that's a sensible goal. Um, Boy, it's not easy. Uh, the The question is, what's the benefit of belonging to this Democratic club? Uh, uh, right now, you know, uh, apart from the special tariffs that the Trump administration has put on uh, goods from China. I, uh, Tariffs don't play a big role in digital trade, and they certainly don't play a, a role in internet uh, um, uh, activity or who gets to dominate the internet. Uh, and probably uh, uh, even the not the, the the biggest barrier to trade is the GDPR, which is is saying, well, you you can't export uh, data to the United States because they're so notoriously inadequate as a matter of human rights law. Um, eh, Now, that's also a principle the U.S. would cheerfully apply to China. So it's not like um, we're unfamiliar with the idea of setting up those restrictions. Is it your idea that at the end of the day, we're going to have restrictions on the export of personal data to a variety of places. And we ought to try to make sure that at least as between us and India and Europe and Japan and Taiwan and South Korea, we can still move the personal data around the world because uh, at least we trust those companies not to abuse the personal data when it gets there.
4: So I I think that's a part of it. I think when I look at All of these issues narrowly, if you look at GDPR, if you look at efforts at data localization in India, if you look at the problems of cross-border law enforcement in a digital age, all of these problems seem impossible to solve on their own, essentially because there isn't the will to solve them on their own. And so what I've argued you need to do is you need to say, well, look, this digital trade zone is going to come with huge benefits to anybody join it, who joins it, and therefore cost to countries that don't. And so that middle ground that's been hard to reach on things like privacy and national security access to information that you can't solve in a negotiation between the United States and Europe that's just about that issue, I think you can solve if you say, look, this is part of a massive trade relationship where we're deciding to go in this direction together. It's to both our benefits. Some compromises can be made. Some solutions can be found. And the incentive to do that is you get to be part of this trade relationship. And I think the biggest thing for a lot of countries that I've really been focused on is to think of digital trade, not just as about the ones and zeros, but about the hardware and the software that makes all of the digital economy possible. And if you start thinking about the members of this accord of this trade zone as being the places where that hardware and software gets produced in a trusted supply chain that does not involve China, then you've got a real incentive for many countries in Eastern Europe to sign up for many countries in South America and East Asia and South Asia to sign up, and so I think if you tie these trade issues to these seemingly intractable issues about data governance and data providence, you actually may be able to solve them.
0: Okay, so let's 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 play that out. Uh, I think it is fair to say to the rest of the world, look, the United States and anybody else, any other country that's uh, paying attention is very worried about compromise of the security of the code and the hardware on which the modern digital economy runs. Um, and increasingly, our solution to that worry is to say there are countries we're not going to buy this stuff from. Uh, Do you want to be one of those countries, or do you want to be inside the tent uh, uh, when we uh, uh, decide who we trust as a supplier? And better to be inside the tent, probably. Uh, um, Certainly, if you think that the Chinese are likely to be uh, coming after you for uh, espionage purposes, uh, you might say, well, uh, in order to get the benefit of greater security um, uh, from the hardware that's going to be circulating inside the Western uh, uh, economy. Um, I want to be part of that, and I'll get some jobs out of it too because um, uh, maybe I have cheaper labor. There will be a lot of uh, assembly of uh, products that – Isn't economic to do in a highly developed uh, economy, but which it is good to do in India or Vietnam or Indonesia, um, and therefore I'll get the benefit of being able to take those jobs away from China. Is that basically what you're offering?
4: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay, so that's that's there. What we're threatening is that non tariff barriers are coming and they're legitimate and national security based. Uh, uh, and so there has to be a national security based, um, club of, uh, relatively allied or aligned countries. Uh, now it's, it's easy to say that, um, Many of these countries are quite enthusiastic about their own espionage services and uh, uh, might be tempted uh, to build products that have backdoors that only they know about. Uh, uh, how do you police that?
4: So, I mean, the sh- the short answer is that it's very hard to police that within the supply chain. It's very hard to inspect electronic hardware and software and find something that is clearly a backdoor, clearly an uh, intentionally introduced vulnerability. But it does happen. I, I think the thing that's really surprised me in some ways about recent Chinese espionage is the degree to which they don't seem to care about getting caught anymore. They don't think that there's going to be consequences. And when I step back and I look at that, I actually think that's an illogical position. I mean, if you want to build significant multi million dollar transformers for the US electric grid, uh, you really should make sure that nobody's doing anything that could ruin the trust relationship. That you have. So I think the first piece is to simply make that logical argument. Maybe there's some level of spying that's acceptable in certain ways if it's carried out over the internet, but compromising the supply chains that uh, are necessary for national security, that's not acceptable.
0: So the you you, you do you would your idea would be maybe we enforce this just by saying look. We're all gentlemen here. I, uh, we understand what is expected of people who are inside this club. And if we catch you deviating from that, the consequences will be that uh, you'll be kicked out of the club and all of the companies that depend on being inside the club will suffer.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think if if you think about it in, in a certain way, I think you have to assume that the countries that are going to be inside this club don't really have any plans to go to war with each other. And so they're not going to do things that are essentially preparation of the battlefield. So you might have to set limits and say, look, probing critical infrastructure is off limits. Industrial espionage is off limits. I also think that there are certain concessions that we need to make on diplomatic espionage that I don't really think are as costly to the United States as some people make. I I don't think the Germans are ever going to get over spying on Angela Merkel's cell phone until we make some sort of commitment not to do that. And I don't actually think that harms our national security in any fundamental way. And so I think it's possible that we can kind of do what we actually say the PR is for our uh, collection which is focus on terrorism and focus on cybersecurity and that it's you know not about stealing the talking points for the next trade negotiation round.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think the Germans will ever get over uh, us not being German. Uh, they, they, and so there will always be a problem with America uh, uh, from the German point of view, uh, usually some moral failing that they're particularly happy to uh, uh, point to. Um, so I'm I'm not convinced that we need to or that we could even sell to our allies the idea of not spying uh, on each other. You know, the European Union has been around for 50, 60, 70 years, uh, and it's still an article of faith that, of course, they can spy on each other. Uh, and and if you tried to take that away, you'd have immense diplomatic problems. Uh, uh, so it's not just that this is U.S. spies versus the the the, the sweet civic uh, 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 citizens of other countries. Um, everybody's got a spy service, and everybody has learned something they thought was really important from espionage, um, even about their allies. Uh, uh, frankly. I'm sort of inclined to think that uh, that kind of espionage probably is never strategically important but it actually has a lot of value in allowing people to understand when their allies are lying to them and when they're not which is often quite nice to know for sure so I'm not sure I would I would I would try for the first time in history to come up with a uh, no spy accord uh, I think you're biting off more than you can chew there um, and I will say you know some of your recommendations sound very very comfortable for Silicon Valley and not for anybody else uh, uh, you you say we should we should put aside the question of, What to do about end to end encryption? When I think that for like India, the Indian government, they think this end to end encryption crap is exactly the sort of neo imperialism from Silicon Valley that they're sick of.
4: Well, I mean, I think the question is if we can get away with with putting it to side and certainly not raising it as an issue that we need. I mean, I, I basically want to keep the FBI out of any kind of negotiation room uh, on this, because I think I think they would endanger it you know, more than uh, more than anybody. Um, I, I think those are issues that it is possible to between Europe and the U.S. at least sort of table and say, look, we can do a deal on these areas we may not agree on these other areas um, it's going to be a really hard sell in domestic politics if you tell us that u.s companies need to build in backdoors for law enforcement access as part of this agreement right that'll be a deal killer on on the u.s side and so i sort of put that to the side because if we can't put it to the side then we can't have a deal
0: so one of the possibilities it seems to me as an alternative to your approach of saying why don't we uh uh, prohibit spying why don't you let people move the personal data around in in this inside the club um and if they engage in espionage they have to share any intelligence that's relevant to another member of the club with them uh, I I recognize there 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 might be a few civil liberties objections to that but I, I you could certainly get a lot of uh, interest from the uh, uh, national security side of all these governments
4: so I, I make two points there one um I entertained the idea of an expanded five eyes and I was laughed out of the room uh, more so than. And by whom? I can't reveal what members of my advisory committee said.
0: Sorry. Do they come from the national security side or did they come from the commercial side?
4: They came from the national security side. Yeah. Um but you know that may be that may be a minority a minority view. Maybe it is possible that you, that you could expand it, and and I think if espionage is really focused on those core issues of counterterrorism, and uh, counter cyber and cybersecurity, then I think you might be able to think about at least some extended. Uh, intelligence sharing value that comes from it. But you know, the other point on, on the espionage front is uh, I still believe that you are better off as a European citizen having Facebook hold your data than you are if it's held uh, by a European country. I think in a European country, you both have to worry about uh, NSA accessing that data and you have to worry about your own country accessing that data. Uh, Whereas if it's protected under U.S. law, uh, it's going to be, I think, harder for your country to access that data. They're always complaining about that. Uh, And then there's going to be legal uh, hoops to access it uh, on behalf of any U.S. agency. And so I, I think that that's the kind of espionage issue that we really need to tangle with and, and potentially move a lot that is currently in the spy v. spy world, the signals intelligence world, into the process world and come up with processes for accessing that data lawfully, respecting legitimate differences between one country or another country. And that's why I was a big fan of Cloud Shield, because I thought it it was starting to recognize and move in the direction of saying within democratic countries, there can be different standards and we can come up with solutions that we can be comfortable with uh, for accessing a Greek citizen's data held by Facebook in the United States that may be a different standard than we would use uh, in the United States. I, I think we can stomach that
0: well and, and that that is potentially one of the things that that a a deal of this sort would offer to the United States it would be a a treaty um a, at some level an international agreement which could modify the uh, uh the european convention that uh, uh, contains the uh clauses on which the uh court of justice of the european union relied on in order to say uh, you will share this data with the United States over our broken, bleeding bodies, uh, and instead you just say, "Oh yeah, uh, we've we've amended the uh, what amounts to the constitution of the of of the European Union in order to make it more realistic uh, and to allow data flows while at the same time putting. Some democratic civil rights and civil liberties restrictions on uses of data uh, I, for the U.S. I mean, we've currently got a virtually insoluble problem if we can't do something like that with uh, with U.S. Uh, EU data flows. So, I there's something in it for the U.S. Maybe a resolution of data localization or of the. Um, weird uh, uh, CJEU uh, uh, ruling in Shrems 2. Uh, maybe we get an understanding about the security of our supply chain and an alternative to China that we have some actual faith in, and other countries get to not be on the wrong side of the trusted, untrusted supply chain uh, uh, that uh, the U.S. is going to be constructing and that other countries will uh, likely join as well. So all that makes sense. I, the, the one thing that I thought was sort of caused me to stop when I was reading this, it's a good paper, and the, and you raise a lot of good issues, you almost always plump for the more mechanistic, more uh, um, secretariat-heavy approach to how should we run this, I wonder if we wouldn't be better off running it much less informally and just trying it out as opposed to uh, producing something like the WTO, which frankly is a a failed uh, institution at this point.
4: No, I, I I think that when I look at the history of trying to create norms in cyberspace, when I looked at the digital trade, trade uh, the digital trade chapter uh, from the Canada Mexico U.S. Uh, trade accord, uh, and from the Budapest Convention, I said, okay, well, you know, what, what's missing in in all of this is really something that is going to bring these agreements together in any kind of operational way, uh, be able to call balls and strikes when necessary, be able to do evaluations of whether people are complying. Uh, one of the most interesting things that a trade negotiator said to me as I was talking about this uh, is he said, look, the, the biggest challenge here with everything you're proposing is that trade negotiator negotiators, we, we just don't do enforcement. That's just not, you know, part of it. We get the deal done and everybody makes these promises and trade flows and you don't really have to worry about living up to your obligations. And you're essentially proposing something where the core of it, the purpose of it would be to get countries to live up to their obligations. And it's never been done before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and uh, frankly, if if you let the trade negotiators near this, it'll fail. I, I, this is not what they do, uh, and they uh, they wouldn't do it well. This is something that ought to be negotiated. I'm, I'm afraid out of state, maybe out of the uh, uh, the digital ambassador's office. Uh, um, the trade negotiators, uh, their business model is to go talk to. Uh, uh, Silicon Valley and a few other places and say, what do you want? What do you like in American law? OK, we'll write down all the things we like about American law and we'll put them into international agreements so that even Congress can't change them. Won't you be happy? And the, uh, uh, the guys in Silicon Valley say, yeah, we'd, we'd put some lobbying money behind, behind that. And that's how you get the agreement through. That is not an agreement we want. Uh, uh, is something that just defaults to whatever Silicon Valley wants.
4: So I agree, and that's why I mean that's why I think beefing up enforcement, and, and I think there's a whole lot of models for this that we, we can look to. One that I like the most is the Financial Action Task Force, which has really done a great job on money laundering and done it in a way that hasn't been uh, overly dominant by developed nations, and done it in a way that has, I think largely been successful uh, and created the kind of mechanisms that we need in cybersecurity to deal with cybercrime uh, and to deal with the inevitable problems that will arise as you try to enforce an agreement like this.
0: OK, so uh, we can agree, at least directionally, this is a good idea. Last question. Uh, um, what kind of progress that you think you're making, either with uh, um, the Trump administration, the former Obama administration folks who want to be in the Biden administration uh, and with Silicon Valley?
4: So uh, I guess it's probably safe to say this. Um, this has been received surprisingly well, uh, given who it came from and where it came from, uh, I think in the Trump administration, um, I've gotten positive feedback, uh, on it. Um, even the criticism that I've made of their, uh, their clean network, uh, initiative is being, uh, not terribly well structured and, uh, needing a structure like this, uh, I'd say within the, the sort of old guard of, manufacturing in the U.S., there's been almost a, a positive response that said, you know, we're already going in this direction. We're already separating out our supply chains from China. We we see this as a, a great benefit uh, to us. Uh, what I don't know is really if there's a Biden administration, um, is this uh, too protectionist? Does it seem like it's building off too much of uh, what the Trump administration has done? Is the plan going to be to go back uh to twenty sixteen and kind of make nice with China uh or uh, are we in a fundamentally different place? Uh and I, I think that's just an open question uh, in my mind. I, I've been I've been told by some that you know this is not a uh an idea that uh they think a a, a USTR team uh in a Biden administration uh would would jump on. But Maybe you're right. Maybe that's the wrong place uh, for an agreement like this to be pursued.
0: Well, especially if they make Hunter Biden the U.S. trade representative, I'm guessing uh, (laughs) that it could be problematic. Uh, I actually think that uh, the problems that uh, 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 Joe Biden has had with his son, Uh, mean that the forces in the Democratic Party who are more China skeptical are going to have a little bit more sway, at least I hope so, uh, because going back to the Obama administration on this is a recipe for diplomatic and economic disaster and I believe for the Democrats' electoral disaster as well. All right well uh, I I hope you'll continue to push the uh, the idea I, even if we disagree about the details uh, and uh uh Thanks to Maury uh, Shank, to Nick Weaver, to Michael Weiner, and to Rob Kanaki for joining me on this uh, uh, program. The, uh, uh, we'd like you to send us comments and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if you suggest somebody who should be on the program and they do come on, we will send you one of our highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mugs. I've got a Twitter feed at Stuart Baker that occasionally, pretty re- regularly recently, um, asks people to vote on uh, the story. And it has the impact on which stories we cover. Uh, rate the show, leave us a review. We've gotten uh, a bunch of reviews uh, uh, just recently, uh, and uh, I'll uh, I'll read a few. Uh, J. W. Steigerwald says Stewart is a model of a civil debater. Jeez, uh, uh, standards have fallen, I guess. Uh, you can tell who he agrees with and who he does not, but the show does not degrade the common form of uh, the to the. Common form of pundits talking past each other. I, I Mendel Ig, I uh, says, great questions being asked and great guests and none one 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 oh 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 says this is a highly entertaining show that educates listeners about significant current events kudos to Stuart for his efforts so thanks to all of you uh, next time uh, I'll try to read some entertainingly abusive uh, reviews but we haven't had any recently uh, this has been episode 335 of the cyber law podcast brought to you by steptoe and Johnson please join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security, privacy, and government.